Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Acts 13, verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not that one. No, but he is coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy ones see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. 
But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. Uh, Let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. We just sung these words, tell all the world of Jesus. And uh, we pray that in the words of scripture and by the power of your spirit, we may see the Jesus that we are to proclaim this morning and that we would be obedient in proclaiming him. For Christ's sake, amen. Uh, Thank you, Pete. Thank you uh, for the invitation. It's great to be here. It's great to work on what are, for me, two new passages today. I trust that God will do his work through his word and by his spirit. Uh, Preparing a sermon for you here this morning has involved two different stages of work. One is the detailed study of the text uh, that I've been asked to speak on seeking to understand what it is that uh, God is saying through those texts. That's what we've just prayed for. And that has required me to understand what they would have meant to the original hearers or audiences uh, this, this morning in Pisidian Antioch, this evening in Athens. And of course, we're thinking also of the audience that Luke was addressing as he summarized uh, Paul's sermons. So that's the first task. But secondly, there is the work of considering the listeners that I am speaking to. In other words, you. I could tuck this sermon in my back pocket and produce it again in Foy in Cornwall next Sunday where I'm due to preach. And the message could be exactly the same but in a different place and context It's one of the dangers of uh, web sermons uh, in that they are prepared for specific audiences and yet can be listened to or downloaded and with, I would have to say and admit, a degree of profit anywhere in the world. Well, in the two texts that I'm preaching today, we have two sermons recorded by the same man, the Apostle Paul. They're not full sermons. Uh, They only take a few minutes each to read. They are summaries. They are, of course, not the only sermons that Paul preached either, nor even his only sermons recorded in Acts. They are, however, two sermons given in very different contexts and cultural situations. Acts chapter 13, before us this morning, is given primarily to Jewish people in the local synagogue. Although, as we see, the listeners on this and the subsequent Sabbaths in the bit immediately after our passage contain quite a variety. So we've got leaders of the synagogue, we've got Jews 
who met in the synagogue week by week. We've got devout converts to Judaism. We've got God-fearing Gentiles. Well, this evening we'll look at a very different context. But whilst the unchanging good news will be the same whatever the context, we do need to consider very carefully how to present the unchanging good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified in the most appropriate way for all those who are listening. Just as the four evangelists give us uh, the same basic events recorded in the Gospels, but in different ways, according to their listeners. Well, as well as work of doing that work on the text, I've tried to look a little at the context here in Sheffield, both in the church, and I learned that from the website, and the town, so as to be better able to apply the truths of the passages here in Sheffield. Uh, You will need to do your own thinking, your own detailed thinking, depending on your own context and contacts. Fortunately, there are statistics available that point out, for example, that the growth of Sheffield's population has been by 10% between 2001 and 2014, and that 19% are of ethnic minority origin. There's been a growth of those who state that they have no religion from 31% in, uh, uh, it is now 31%, uh, whereas that is an 88% increase on 2001. Christianity is seen as in decline. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism are all growing in different parts of this city. There are 67,000 students here. There's 16% growth in the 85-plus age group since 2001, with the number of 65-plus expected to grow by 42% in the next 25 years. Well, if Christchurch Fullwood is to be a church uh, with the vision to plant churches, train leaders, and grow Fullwood, you will need to take these facts into account the people that you are seeking to serve. And this can be done by asking questions uh, and by asking ourselves the question, so what? So what if the number of uh, pensionable age people in this town are going to grow by X percentage in the next few years? What does that mean for us as Christchurch Fullwood? Well, that's just what your mission partners uh, do as well. The Norgates, Jonathan and Zoe, will have been doing in Buddhist um, post-conflict Cambodia. Rachel Olney, uh, serving in Austria. Robin and Lorna, although in Australia at the moment, but in Central Asia. And your supported youth work uh, and the the camps that... um, Andy and Joffe Oatridge are just finishing today in Hungary. They will all need to do this work of thinking about the context into which they are bringing God's word. Crosslinks encapsulates the task in our strapline, God's word to God's world. The good news of God in his word, same for every generation, same for every religion, creed, social background, but that Good news needs to be explained carefully and intelligently to different people in different ways, God's world. So as Paul here addresses an audience of people who shared the same basic culture, the same worldview, and who knew their Old Testaments so well, 
then he needed to think through how he was to speak the gospel of Christ to them. Well, three emphases that Paul addresses, which I just want to pick out briefly for us this morning, when invited to address those meeting in the synagogue. Firstly, God's gracious initiative for his people, verses 13 to 22. Paul and his merry men go to the synagogue on the Sabbath where the normal routine was followed. Readings from the law, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, the latter part of the Hebrew Bible. And they are invited to give a word of exhortation, verse 15, to the people. So in verse 16, Paul stands and motions with his hand. He addresses them as fellow Israelites and God-worshipping or fearing Gentiles. And then he proceeds to give them a Bible overview of the Old Testament. That was their scripture. And picking out the highlights. Now, Paul earlier uh, in Acts chapter 7, as Saul, as he was known in those days, had heard Stephen run through a Bible overview. And here, he follows suit, though gives more emphasis to David than Stephen uh, does, and less on Moses. So what does he pick out if you follow through? Uh, He picks the call of Abraham, the time in and rescue from Egypt, the subsequent 40 years in the desert, Uh, the conquest of the land, the period of the judges, the request for a king provided in Saul and then in David. And why does Paul do this to an audience of people who would have been very familiar with this story and with its main features? Well, he certainly, by doing so, establishes his credentials in ways that would have fitted well in that context. He he builds a bridge of, of common understanding with his hearers. But the way he relates the story serves to emphasize different aspects that Paul was wanting his hearers to reflect on. He's not being economical with the truth, but he's building his case uh, by running through the Old Testament. And he picks out two particular emphases or two elements. Firstly, God's initiative. Look with me at verses 13 to 22. God or he are the subjects of the sentences. God chose our ancestors. He made them prosper in Egypt. He led them out. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan. God gave them judges. Yes, they then asked for a king, but he is the one who gave them Saul. He removed Saul. He made David their king. Notice Also, that David was not the one that they would have chosen as their king. So even in that, he is taking the initiative. And the Old Testament is the story of God taking the initiative at every stage. It didn't depend on their ancestors doing anything. I heard a few weeks ago a wonderful way that your former vicar, Hugh Palmer, answered the host of The One Show just before Christmas And uh, in that program, you may have seen it, they were reflecting on the total sum of money that had been raised for children in need. And the interviewer was keen to infer that you don't have to be a Christian to do such good things as give to charity. And the interviewer suggests then that charitable giving is at the heart of the Christmas message that you, Hugh, would like to give. Well, Hugh agrees, but says... And I quote, real charity begins with God. The 
generous, good God who's highlighted at Christmas, we don't give so that God will give to us. We give, we love, because he first loved us. That's Christmas, said Hugh. Well, that was probably what Paul was trying to communicate with the Jews and God-fearers in the Pisidian synagogue that day. God has taken the initiative. It's not about what they do or did. How easily we slip into thinking that Christianity is like other religions where we do the doing. But it's not. It's all about God doing, or rather what he has done. But not only God's initiative, but God's grace. It was totally undeserved. Look with me at these verses. When God, what God does in choosing a people is his initiative, doesn't depend on them. And actually, verse 18, in the wilderness, it says he endured their conduct. Uh, That comes uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1. It said he carried them, a bit like a, a parent with a grumpy child who refuses to cooperate. That was grace, wasn't it? They didn't want the help that he was giving them. And when they took the initiative to ask for a king, he knew that they were rejecting him as their ruler, but he still in his grace, gave them Saul and then David, and he continues to use David for his great purposes, as we shall see. Now, people of every nation, every generation, every background need to hear the wonderful good news of this gracious, initiative-taking God. The eventual offer of justification that Paul proclaims in verse 39 is not obtainable, it says, through their obedience to the law of Moses, but was given by the gracious initiative of God in Jesus, the theme of the next part of the sermon. So that's the first part. Secondly, God's gracious fulfillment of his promises in Jesus, 23 to 37. Of course, the Old Testament story points continuously forward to Jesus, as indeed John the Baptist did. We have that recorded in verses 24 and 25. And when the risen Lord Jesus had traveled with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he begins with Moses and all the prophets. He explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, it is to Jesus that Paul now turns from this man, from this man, David's descendants, verse 23, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Paul then relates the essentials, details of Jesus' story, focusing on his death and resurrection. Well, that's an important element always for us to focus on in communicating Christ to others. It was the focus of Jesus' own ministry uh, uh, in that it's recorded with the vast majority given to his death and resurrection. And he points out time and again that he was fulfilling the scriptures, the scriptures that these uh, people in Pisidian Antioch would have been very familiar with. Well, as Paul speaks of Jesus, he wants to underline all that happened was a fulfillment of what God had promised in the Old Testament, even if the result was not what the human authors or actors were intending. 
thus emphasizing the gracious nature of the fulfillment. Look with me at verse 27. In condemning him, the people of Jerusalem and the rulers fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written about him. Verse 32, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us by raising Jesus. Paul goes on to quote three recognized messianic passages in Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, and Psalm 16, stating that the Holy One that was promised in the Old Testament would not see decay. And yet he says, well, you've got David here in a tomb. He is dead, buried, and decayed, but Jesus isn't. Rather, he is alive, as Paul himself had experienced And there were witnesses uh, around to uh, witness that fact. His resurrection is the proof that God is faithful and fulfills all his promises. Well, as he moves on into the final part of his sermon, where he outlines the nature of the promise that was fulfilled in Jesus and warns his hearers against responding as their ancestors had done. Verses 38 to 43, God's gracious offer and solemn warning. This concluding section starts with Paul referring to these people as his friends, and he outlines the good news. The promise of the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus, guaranteed by his resurrection, was that in Jesus there is this offer of forgiveness of sins, of being set free from every sin, a justification they couldn't obtain under Moses, a justification open to all who believe a solution to the fundamental problem between God and humankind can be fixed. Being declared right with God has been made possible only through Jesus' death and resurrection. The law of Moses only led to condemnation. Well, this wonderful good news does come with a serious health warning. And to underline it, where does Paul turn? again to the authority that they would have recognized their scriptures. He warns them against unbelief that had characterized the Jews who condemned Jesus, the Jews who had scoffed at the thought of God's judgment in the time of Habakkuk, a judgment that the hearers would have known all about, suggesting that if these hearers rejected Jesus, the only one through whom justification was obtainable, then there was nothing that they could expect but the terrifying judgment of God. And yet even this severe warning was evidence of God's wonderful grace, motivated by a desire that the hearers would believe and be saved. Well, we have to have both the offer of good news, but also the solemn warning in our proclamation of Jesus Christ in 21st century Sheffield We need to remember that the same faithful God who makes those wonderful promises to us also promises uh, judgment on those who disobey. Well, Paul, as I said, uh, is in a setting where the audience would have shared culture, worldview, and the scriptures with the visitors that day. Paul tailors his message in order to maximize its impact. He builds bridges. He tells the story they would have been familiar with, drawing out the uh, lessons of God's initiative in their history. He takes them to Jesus and shows how Jesus was the one that their own scriptures 
had spoken of. He majors on Jesus' death and resurrection, a proof of all that Paul was saying. And where this led was to the proclaiming of the gospel of the forgiveness of sins as Jesus himself talked of as the mission of his disciples after his resurrection. Now was the time for his hearers to respond to that offer from the promises of forgiveness. Well, what was the result of this beautifully and carefully crafted sermon? A very warm response, if you look at verse 43, from Jews and devout uh, converts to Judaism wanting immediate follow-up. And the following week, the crowds are so large that the Jews actually become jealous and contradict the message. Note that even the most crafted and most appropriate message is no guarantee of a positive response from those for whom it is tailored. Jesus himself discovered uh, or, or knew that it would happen and discovered that many people would reject his message. And that is true today as well. So Paul's message to these God-fearers was clear, direct, majoring on the essentials. It was God-centered and resulting in a challenge to respond. And it was sensitively crafted for the specific audience. May that be true of our communication of this great good news to those around us, focusing on God's wonderfully gracious initiative, focused on Jesus, his death and resurrection, and containing both the wonderful offer and the terrible warning. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. We pray that it would touch our hearts afresh this morning and enable us to obey it and to make it known to others, or rather to make Jesus known to others. For we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.